Well, good morning. morning. So how many of you, thank you, Holly, how many of you uh, remember, and the younger people, the high schoolers are probably not going to unless it's been a remix of something, but how many of you remember the old Tina Turner song, What's Love Got to Do With It? Right? It was a pretty big song. I know it dates us because the high schoolers are like, what? Um, So that was a pretty big song, and and, uh, it's an older song, but Mike and I, before we had gotten married, when we were dating, we had, we had decided to get married. So we went to this, well, this gentleman that, that we saw kind of as a mentor in our lives. I wouldn't think we knew that word, but we generally went to him and his wife for some general counsel in our dating relationship. And we remember telling them that we think we, we, we'd like to get married. And he asked us why. And we said, well, because we love each other. And his response was exactly the line of that song. What's love got to do with it? This was his response to us. Now, um, fortunately, my husband who's sitting here of almost uh, 33 years, um, we didn't listen to him. And sadly, him and his wife were divorced five years after that. Now, maybe this gentleman's idea of love um, was different Maybe it was based on feelings. Maybe it was based on circumstances. Um, It definitely wasn't based on the kind of love that is sacrificial, that has a commitment to it, uh, the kind of love that costs, the kind of love that is faithful. And Mike and I thought that we were entering into that kind of love. We, We thought we had that love for each other. We were pretty proud that way. And so we got married and, uh, in the course of being married, I gave my life to Christ about shortly, after, shortly before a year after we got married, and my husband, Mike, gave his life to the Lord about two years later. And so about five years into our marriage, it became very evident to us that we did not in and of ourselves have the ability to sacrificially, faithfully love one another to make this thing work. That we were trying, we loved each other, But we didn't have that kind of love. And as we grew in our new faith in Christ, we realized that that kind of love comes from God. And so five years into our marriage, we actually rededicated our marriage to the Lord. And we had another little ceremony, and we just basically said to God, God, we need you. We need you to keep us together. And now instead of looking to one another uh, to make this thing work, we're going to both look to you. And we're going to trust that you are going to keep us together. It was the smartest thing we did because the storms started to hit after that. And I know to this day that it's God who has continued to give both of us that kind of sacrificial, selfless commitment to one another. Now, you might ask, what does this all have to do with grace? Well, we're going to see today that the only proper response to grace is love. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to take us into the next layer of grace. We've been looking a lot at what grace is, and we're going to do a, a slow review on that this morning. But, but really, what I want to move us towards is what is the proper response to grace? How do we respond to the grace that's been given us by God? What is our part in it? So first, I want to just look at the difference between grace and love real quick. So... If you have your note sheet, you can get that out. We'll have a few fill-ins for you. A review on grace. Now, 
there's um, a key spiritual truth that I thought we were going to look at. It's probably at the top of your note sheet there. But I actually, as I was, as I was working on this sermon yesterday, I found there's a new key spiritual truth for us to consider as we go through. And, and that is this. We have it on the slide. That grace defines how we are made right with God. Grace defines how we are made right with God. And that's the difference in many ways between grace and love. So grace isn't just something that we do. It's actually something we receive. And we have to understand that right off the bat, that that's how it differs from love. Grace is, it defines how we are made right with God. The Bible sees everything in these terms. From, from start to finish, the word righteous, uh, made holy, made right, it's just a key term from, from the Old Testament through the New Testament because the Bible is all about how we are made right with God, who is, who isn't, and how we can be righteous. In right standing with God, right with God. And so grace, the word grace, is actually a Greek word that connects to a Hebrew word. And, and, and that word, that Hebrew word, actually means something like charity or gift. It can also mean holiness. And so we, we kind of put those two together, understanding what is the grace of God that has been given to us. And we look at that Hebrew word that is connected to it, it's charity, it's gift, it's holiness. And so really, grace is God's charity to make us holy. There's our key spiritual truth. Grace is God's charity to make us holy. See? Think about that for a minute. What is charity? Charity is a gift you give someone who cannot get that for themselves. It's not just pity. It's actually giving someone something that they can't get for themselves. And so we understand the whole meaning of the definition of grace is that we don't have it in and of ourselves. We cannot be right with God by ourselves. It's a charitable gift from God, and it has a purpose. We've been looking at the charitable gift that it is the last few weeks in our all-church study on grace, but we're going to move to the purpose is to make us holy because the meaning of grace is holiness, is righteousness, the charitable gift of God's righteousness given to us for a purpose, see? And so Christianity is unique among all other faiths in many ways because it's based solely on what God has done for us to make us righteous, see? And it begins, and we receive it, by placing our faith in Christ on the cross, like we just sang, in Christ alone we put our faith, that he alone can make us right with God, that he alone can make us holy before God. I know, right? It's, it's, it's overwhelming to think that God could make us holy, we know our brokenness. We know our selfishness. We know our sin nature. It's a radical idea that God's charitable gift, and when we place our faith in Christ, could actually make us holy. It begins by placing our faith in Christ. And Jesus said on the cross, he said what? He said, it is done. The gift is there. It's ready to be given. It's ready to be received. It's grace from God. Now, this, this grace word also denotes this, this Hebrew understanding and this image that they had of, of the word to stoop. Kind of like charity, to stoop down. 
okay? To give someone something that, that someone isn't as fortunate as you, to stoop down, almost like, a, like British royalty who stops and stoops down to the commoner, right, to shake their hand. And so we, we put that image involved in grace, and we see that, that grace is God stooping down to remove the barriers between us and him and taking our hand and lifting us up to him. He's stooping down to us. This is what God has done for us. And therefore, the opposite of grace, sometimes it's easier to understand something, what it is, when we, when we understand what it's not. So the opposite of grace is to earn God's favor by our own efforts, right? To not remain in that charitable place. To refuse to humble ourselves to receive charity. That's not always an easy thing to do. If you've ever had to stand in a soup kitchen, not just to serve, but to receive. And if you've had to receive help financially, physically, emotionally, it's humbling. And yet it, it, it so requires of us because the opposite of grace is that we think in any way that we could earn God's favor or we could be right with God by our own efforts. Now, the biblical text that we read about is predominantly spoken to the Jewish people. And so their efforts are based on the law, the law that makes them right with God. And so, so, so Jesus comes and Paul talks a lot about how, no, 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 the law could never make us right with God, as a lot what Pastor Chris talked about last week. The law reveals to us that we could never do it. And so we need grace. Now, we don't talk a lot about the law in our Gentile context, in our modern day context, we don't really even talk about works that much anymore. We might use the word religion. We might, we might say the opposite of grace is a religion that tells you we have to do these things in order to be acceptable to God. And these are, this is why we do them. And Paul would say to us, and Jesus would say to us, this is religion, not grace. Now the irony of a works-oriented religion Here's the irony is that we cannot keep the standards we propose as necessary for everyone else, right? That's the irony, okay? So in, in many ways, that, that would be called hypocrisy, right? When we, when we hold everyone else to these standards, when we ourselves cannot keep them. When we think about Jesus, he was angry at the Pharisees. You realize he was not angry at the Pharisees because they revered the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. The law is good, like Pastor Chris talked about last week. The law is what we need in order to understand our need for grace. The law is a reflection of God's character, his holiness, what he's trying to do in us. Jesus was angry at the Pharisees because they held everyone else to the expectation to fulfill the law when they, they themselves couldn't do it. They were hypocrites, and they shamed everyone else, and they cast everyone else away when they themselves could not fulfill the whole law. Now, modern-day example of that, since uh, Pastor Chris threw me under the bus this morning, I, I, it's okay, because I was sitting there going, yeah, he'll, he'll get hit. And here it comes. So, so, with that being said, so last week, you know, here's an example of hypocrisy, okay? So last week, Pastor Chris told us that, and he was trying to tell us about how the law, how, how we come into faith in Christ and we join God's family. And there's still rules, right? There's household rules. And, and he tried to use an example of in his household rules. His household rules is you've got to turn off the lights. 
And, and he shamed his family publicly, remember, for not turning off those lights. And he told us how much his bill was, right? And, and he told us that he always turns off the lights. But then he comes home and every light is left on. Here's what I found out later. Went up to Holly and talked about, wow, that, that big electric bill is a real bummer, right? She kind of grinned. She said, yeah, what he didn't tell you is that Pastor Chris leaves the jacuzzi running all day so that he can get into it at the end of the day. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the bill, right? <laughs> it's a great example of hypocrisy, right? <laughs> so when we shame others for doing something that we ourselves are not doing, right? Or not doing what we ourselves are not doing, that's a great example of being religious, being hypocritical. I know, you were asking for it. I, I, I was debating. I really was. <laughs> yeah, Monday should be an interesting day for me. <laughs> In all fairness, because I like my job. <laughs> Here's the point. When we attempt to justify ourselves as righteous, we will become everyone else's judge, see? When we, adjust, when we attempt to justify ourselves as righteous, whatever way we're trying to be right with God, right with others, we end up being everyone else's judge. We will decide what is better, what is worse, right? The person who turns off the lights shames the person who leaves the jacuzzi on, the person who leaves the jacuzzi on shames the person who leaves on the lights. We decide what rules are, are more important than others in order to be right with God. If they just acted as I do, we might think, when we look at other people who are struggling, everything would be okay in their lives. It's hypocrisy. Do you do everything right in your lives? Do you earn God's favor? Because at the end of the day, humanity has a big bill to pay to God. And no one's going to be able to afford to pay it. I have a friend, um, Art Doherty, who is a, a policeman down in the San Diego area. And he's been a chief, I mean, he's been a sergeant in all different roles. And right now in his retirement, he, he, he is security in the courtroom. And so he's escorting the, the uh, sentenced prisoners from the courtroom down to the jail cells. And he was telling me about what a great opportunity that is for him to share with them in that moment, right after they received their sentencing, hope in Christ. And this is what he shares. He says, he puts his arm around them, man or woman. He says, you know what? He says, there are earthly consequences and there are eternal consequences. And yep, you've made a few mistakes that are going to have to pay some earthly consequences. But in eternity, you and I stand at the same place. None of us are right before God. Christ died for you and me, buddy. And you can receive that pardon, and you can be free for eternity, and you can receive that forgiveness if you just place your faith in Christ, because I had to do the same thing. I'm just as guilty before God as you. And he ushers them into their holding cell. It's a humble understanding that we cannot in ourselves earn God's righteousness in any way that only God can provide what we need in order to be right with him. He is the only truly righteous one. So, that's grace. And as we turn the corner, 
we have to ask ourselves then, what is the response? What is the appropriate response to God's grace? And that's your next feeling, that love is the only proper and effective response back to God for his grace. You think about it, since we can't earn it, we can only respond back with gratitude and love. We can't increase it. We can't decrease it. It's done on the cross. I can't think of any other proper response than love. Paul says in Galatians 5, 6b, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. We think of the great commandments, right? They ask Jesus, what's, out of all the law, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. He says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in human or angelic tongues but do not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, keep going, <clears throat> and, I and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may, that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Basically, if we don't do what we do for God out of love, we might as well not do it. We can't increase his love for us. We can't increase our right standing with God. If our motive is anything else, pride, merit, performance, religion, discipline, if our motive is anything but love, we might as well not do it at all. Love is a fulfillment of the entire law. So when we respond to God's grace with love, we are fulfilling the law. Now, love is a pretty loosey-goosey idea in our culture. It's kind of like the story I shared in the beginning. That man's idea of love was different than Mike and I's, which we found out was different from God's. And so I want to take a few minutes this morning and just look at love according to God's word. Look at love in God's eyes. What is love to the Lord? The first feeling we have on your sheet there is love is obedience to the scriptures. As I ask the Lord, Lord, what does it mean and look like for me to respond back to your grace in love? The first scripture that I thought of is this. Let me go to the next slide, please. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever the spirit of truth. Now, before we go to the next slide, even, even the ability for us to obey his commands, if you notice, is a gift because he gives us the Holy Spirit to do it. We can't even boast in our own ability to obey God's commands, that the spirit of truth is given to us a charitable gift so that we might obey him as a form of showing our love. Keep going. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Anyone who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Keep going. Jesus replied, 
Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. There's a distinction there. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, actually loves the Lord. If we love the Lord, we'll obey the Lord. That's the distinction Jesus is making. My Father will love them, and he will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. And so we, on this side of the canon, on this side of the Bible, we show our love in response to God's grace by obeying the Bible. To the best of our ability, with the help of the Holy Spirit, and a lot of confession along the way, and a lot of asking God to help us love the way he loves and obey his commands, die to ourselves the way he has demonstrated and commands us to do. The best biblical illustration I can see of this connection between obedience and love is you think of Jesus himself. So we know that when Jesus died on the cross, we always see his love for us. We always say it was his love for us that held him there. And it's very true. But it was more than that. Look at all his prayers leading up to that moment. It was his love for the Father that kept him obeying the Father in the time when he had to suffer to such intensity. He was willing to suffer a cruel death out of obedience to the Father's will because he loved the Father. That obedience and that love is tied together for us. He models it to us. We cannot love the Lord if you are not in obedience to him with his help, in humility, esteeming his commands, his teachings in our lives. And by the way, obedience to the scriptures, you might be thinking, is not the opposite of grace. It doesn't make us more right with God. What do we say? It's a response back to God. It's love. There's no other appropriate response but to love him back, and he defines what that looks like. While it's true I can never earn or increase God's love for me, sin decreases my love for God. Sin decreases my love for God, see? For this reason, God calls us to obey him, to fuel our love for him, and he gives us the scriptures and the Holy Spirit to help us. So that's like a foundation of what love is to the Lord. Our second one is this, that, that love is long-suffering. Okay, so, so long-suffering is more than just suffering long. Okay, there's, there's more to that for us. The, the long-suffering comes in two Greek words, long and temper. It, it literally means long-tempered, right? Not just suffering, but long-tempered. To have self-restraint when one is stirred to anger. A long-suffering person does not immediately retaliate or punish, but has a long fuse and patiently forbears. This is love to the Lord. Long-suffering is associated with mercy and hope, and God is the source of long-suffering because it's in his very nature. Best example of that is the long-suffering he goes through as he waits for his children to return to him in faith and obedience. The patience the longing, the watching for us to come home. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
I also think of God's long suffering with me. How many times I struggle with the same problem? How many times I confess that is not what you want for me? I know it. Forgive me, Lord, and I keep doing it. God's long suffering, his long fuse in my life, his long tempered heart to not just punish me, but forbear with me, help me, forgive me. And then believers, therefore, receive God's heart through the gift of the Holy Spirit, and therefore his heart, his nature is in us, right? We put our faith in him, Holy Spirit comes in us, and if this is God's nature to be long-suffering for us, he wants us to be long-suffering with others. See, He wants us to have the same kind of patience and forbearance and forgiveness that he has with all of us. He wants us to, to be patient with those that are struggling in disobedience and lack of faith, those who do not know yet his grace. He wants us to be long-tempered with them, see? Perhaps that's why he talks about the, one of the fruits of the Spirit is long-suffering. I don't know if you ever realized that, but let's look at that in the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. This is actually translated in the New American Standard, which is even closer to the Greek, as long-suffering. And I think, I think it's sad that we lose that because patience for us is just... Um, I'm just patient with you to get here on time. You know, okay, yeah, I'm being patient. No, no. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and all these elements are characteristics of inner relationship with others, right? Their actions, their attitudes. They're about how we interact with one another. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You can do as much as you want of these things. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. See? We lean on Jesus to make us right with God. Instead of ourselves, instead of religion, we are given the Holy Spirit to help us, and therefore his heart lives within us, and he calls us to be long-suffering, not just patient with others. This is love. What does this look like? Well, I think as a church, we have to give people room and space and time for God to work in their lives, see? We don't try and change people. We will, do, we will let God do that inner work. See, instead of, instead of telling someone you're so off track, instead of demeaning someone, instead of shaming someone, instead of, instead of acting like we've got it all together, our job as, as a church of grace is to point that person to the work of God. Our job is to prompt them to lean into the scriptures and lean into the Holy Spirit for that change. Because we, we can't change people. Only God can. God doesn't ask us to change people. He asks us to obey him. He asks us to suffer long with people, and he asks us to point people to him, to the truth, to him, and let him do the change, see? The best restraint against sin is the inner prompting of the Holy Spirit through the person and presence of Christ. It's the only thing that's kept me from sinning 
When I really, really want to sin, and someone tells me not to, that usually doesn't really work. But if the Holy Spirit is convicting me, and I'm being pointed by people to the Word, to prayer, I'm in community with people, and I'm starting to hear the Holy Spirit move about me and within me, that's convicting. Then I know something's up, and I need to listen to the Lord. We must stop nagging each other, but instead pointing each other to the one who can truly change, heal, and restore all of us. Now, this takes patience, right? No one changes overnight. And if you ask, how long does it take a person to really get it right? Probably much longer than any of us are comfortable with. Because how long has it taken us to get over some things that God has been working on in our hearts and in our lives? How long has it taken us to change? We have to suffer long with others. Keep pointing them to the Lord. Our job is to share how grace has changed us, share how we've been blessed when we've obeyed the teachings of the Lord, and encourage them in the same way. And finally, God's word teaches us that love is costly. Look with me in Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is love. Ouch, right? It's, it's, it's sacrificial. It's giving ourselves up for him, for others. This is love. Forbearing with the motorcyclists out there, right? Not thinking any negative thoughts towards them, right? Long-suffering, however long this takes. <laughs> Romans 12.1 calls us to offer our bodies unto the Lord as a living sacrifice. Lay down our very lives. Love is sacrifice. We can't get around that. It's it's costly. Our response back to God's grace, if, if it's love, then love is sacrificial. Our response to God's grace is sacrifice. It costs us. Remember, grace is God's charity to make us holy. That's going to cost us. It's not natural for us to be holy. Cost us. We usually have to lay something down. We have to die to ourselves. And we can only hope to glorify God. We can only hope to, to respond back in love if we let God change us, see? We need God to change us. The new opposition today to the gospel of grace is this, that we, we are acceptable to God as is, without being in need of any covering, that we don't need grace or change. There's no cost to that. There's no sacrifice to that. That God should just receive me as I am, and not only should receive me as I am, he should leave me that way. I should not have to die to myself to become anything else. That shouldn't cost me. But when does love not cost? See? Even Christians, I think, today are leaning toward what we used to refer to as cheap grace. Cheap grace can be defined as a grace that forgives us. I'll take his forgiveness, but is not at work to change us. 
The irony is it used to be that change lives and hearts, we understood, was that exactly what gives glory to God. And now we hear that we shouldn't have to change. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's the whole beauty of the gospel, is that God is most glorified when even the angels are in awe that he takes a sinner like you and I and does something radically different with us. And he actually molds us and shapes us and convicts us and makes us more like Jesus. That brings glory to God, but it requires a costly change on our part. It requires we go against our own desires. We lay down those desires. We don't give in to them. We lose things. Change is evidence of God's gracious gift of the Spirit at work in me. If there's no change, there's no evidence. It's not cheap grace. It's an act of living grace. My friend Art Doherty, who I talked about in the police force, he said he can tell a significant difference in those inmates on, on death row. He said, who have given their lives to Jesus Christ, who have received grace, and grace is at work in them, and they are no longer the same men and women. And he tells those inmates as he's, as he's ushering them to their holding cell, he says, you need to connect, you need to go to chapel, because you will see that these inmates on death row even, they are not the same as when they came in because of the grace of God. God's grace changes us. And not just them, not just those we think that need change, God's grace needs to change all of us to be more like Jesus. And so the only way we can allow God to change us is to make him our new master, right? Cheap Grace says we don't need a new master. We want to be our own master. The entire idea is pretty absurd when you think about that, right? Here's a great example. The Emancipation, Proclamation of Emancipation, where the slaves were free in about 1863 to 1865. Slaves are set free. It's a costly gift of freedom. It costs many lives, including our president's life. Here's what they did not expect. They didn't expect that the slaves in the South stayed with their old master unto death. Now, there was other unjust things going on in that economy, but what they found was that most of those slaves that were actually given the chance to have a new master, the freedom from their old master, actually chose to stay with the old. And as a result, they stayed enslaved. This is what happens when we don't make God our master. Only our savior. We only want his forgiveness, but not our master. We don't sacrifice unto him. We don't give him permission to change. We remain enslaved to sin. Sin enslaves us, and if we don't make him our master, it's no different than the slaves who remained enslaved to their old master. It's absurd when you really think about it. Jesus cries out to everyone, offering freedom and change that will bring glory to God in their lives. And both believer and unbeliever refuse God his glory when they don't make him their new master. Both believer and unbeliever. 
Jesus died to be our Lord and Savior, our Master and Savior. And we refuse his glory. We don't respond back appropriately to his grace when we either don't put our faith in him or we don't make him our master. It's not love. It's not the response to grace that he's looking for. And it, it leads us really to the, to the so what section of our sermon. And that is, the grace makes us more and more like Jesus, glorifying God as our number one priority, see? Grace makes us more and more like Jesus, glorifying God as our number one priority. This is love. He's got to come first. It's costly, like we said. I remember a few months back after I first moved here, I flew down for some family stuff just for like a few days and then was flying back up. It was maybe only two or three months after I was here. And I was having a real hard time flying back up. <laughs> I was really emotionally distraught about leaving family, about leaving San Diego. It all kind of hit me what this obedience to the Lord means, what, what this cost is to follow him, what this cost is to, to serve him and his kingdom and his call above myself, to make him my number one priority. And, and so I, I, I was just arguing with the Lord. I was, I was crying. I, I was walking along the bay before I had to go to the airport. And I looked out at the bay, and I, I remembered the scripture when Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? three times. And I felt the Lord say to me, Marilyn, do you love me? I was like, yes, of course I love you. No, Marilyn, do you love me more than all of this? Yes, Lord, I love you more than this. Do you love me more than your grandkids? Yes, Lord, I love you most. You are my number one priority, glorifying you over myself. And I knew at that time that that's what he was asking Peter. It wasn't just being repetitive. He was trying to teach us what love really is. What is the appropriate response to the grace we've been given? It's costly. It's obedience. It's sacrifice. And it's glorifying him as our number one priority, see? Our number one priority. Our second so what comes in the form of, of this. Our awareness of our need for God's grace makes us interact with people more graciously and more humbly. See, our original key spiritual truth was this. When we respond to God's grace, none of us can boast. We can't boast with each other. We can't boast with God. It keeps us humble. It keeps us loving. It keeps us gracious when we know that we didn't do anything right to be right with God. And grace then reminds us that every human being is a potential child of God. See, not because of what they have or haven't done, but because of God's love for every one of us. And if every human being is a potential child of God, then every human being is worthy of being treated with respect and love. 
I see my friend in the police force treating the criminals with equal respect. Why, he said, because they are potential child of God. And why are we potential children of God? Because we all have been created in the image of God. And therefore, we are placed in the universe with the potential of being the children of God once we are redeemed. That means every human being is worthy of being treated with love and respect and compassion. This is, this is why Jesus came, see? When, 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 when Jesus, I love when it says, when he looked out at the masses, and when it, that, when, when it says that, he looks at all those that are, that are out of grace, that, that are messing up, that have given up, all those that are out there living so wrong compared to the law, all those that are hopeless. It says he looks out the masses, and, and, and it doesn't say he was offended by them. It says he has compassion on them. See? Why? Because it says he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as potential children of God without a father. He saw them as orphans, and he had compassion. He was not offended. And when we understand that we too were like sheep without a shepherd, we too were orphans until Christ came and we received his grace, we will then treat others with more compassion and more love. It is the proper response to grace. This doesn't mean that we compromise the word. We just talked about that, right? We just talked about how love is obedience to the word, but we speak truth in love, right? We forbear with others. We are long-suffering with others. We don't act like we did anything to get this thing right. We put our arm around them and say, hey, at the end of the day, without Christ, you and I are no different. Let me tell you what Christ has done for me. And I know he wants to do the same for you. You are a potential child of God. And by the way, this doesn't matter whether they believe it. It doesn't matter whether they receive it from us. It doesn't matter if they blast us back. It doesn't matter if they call us every name in the book. We are called to treat every human being as a potential children, child of God. No matter what. That's where Christ modeled for us how to respond to the grace that's been given to us die to ourselves, live in obedience. It's costly. Glorify him as number one and have grace and long-suffering with others. God uses the image of marriage throughout the Bible to depict what it means to have a faithful response to God's grace. And I think of my husband, we've been married 30, almost 33 years, who has faithfully and sacrificially loved me. And I think what a slap in the face for me to love him back with anything less. For me to say, thanks, but I actually want to go do this and this and this, no matter how this looks on you, affects you, no matter how this drags your name through the mud, because I have a right to be happy. No. Oh. The Lord... He's not looking for cheap love. The Lord has given us everything that cost him everything. And he asks of us to love him back in the same manner. When we understand this, we will glorify him 
and we will have more compassion on others. Let us receive God's immense charitable gift of grace.